Hello, and welcome to the Master of Divinity podcast. Uh, Two weeks ago, we concluded the episode with some musing on the changing nature of moral thinking, particularly in the area of divorce. Today, I want to expand this list of changes and provide some context for future changes. To do this, I'm going to look at something called middle axioms and then move on to the topic of rights. Before we do that, I want to introduce you to five remarkable women. Emily Murphy, Nellie McClung, Irene Parlby, Louise McKinley, and Henrietta Edwards. These five, known collectively as the Famous Five, played a critical role in the advancement of women's rights and in doing so changed the course of Canadian history. They were victorious in an important legal fight, one that took them all the way to Westminster across the pond. The story begins at the end of the First World War. By 1918, the majority of Canadian women obtained the right to vote in federal elections and, by extension, seek election in the House of Commons. In fact, just three years later, the good people of Grey Southeast elected Agnes MacPhail MP for the Progressive Party of Canada. With this significant advance, there was pressure to appoint the first woman to the Canadian Senate. Just a year later, women across Canada pressed the Dominion government to appoint Emily Murphy to the Red Chamber. She was already well known for being Canada's first woman judge, and it seemed appropriate to appoint Murphy to this important post. Government of the day seemed open to the idea, but there was a problem. Back in 1916, during her first day on the bench, one of the lawyers questioned her qualification to judge the case owing to the fact that she wasn't a person under the law. This concern was dismissed, and she continued to judge cases, but the idea came back to haunt her when she became a potential nominee for the Senate. Those interested in the politics of the United States Supreme Court will recall that some cling to the idea of originalism, ruling in a way that reflects the original intent of the men who drafted the Constitution. Well, Canada was infected with originalism as well back in 1922, and there was a consensus in the legal community that when our Constitution was enacted in 1867, Persons, those who could be appointed to the Senate, were men and men alone. As is often the case, the courts would need to decide. In August 1927, the famous five gathered at Emily Murphy's house and drafted a petition to the Supreme Court of Canada, essentially asking the court to rule on whether women were persons under the British North America Act, Canada's constitution at the time. The following spring, the Supreme Court of Canada issued their unanimous verdict. No, women were not persons under the 1867 Act and were therefore ineligible for appointment to the Senate. All seemed lost. There was one remaining avenue, however, and that was an appeal to the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council of Great Britain. 
I should note here that Canada's status as an independent nation evolved over many years, over a hundred years, in fact. Canada didn't have her own foreign policy until 1931, nor did the idea of Canadian citizenship exist until 1947. We were simply British. So the famous five were able to leverage this colonial holdover to press their case in London, and they won. Sadly, Emily Murphy's seat went to another Albertan. Appointments were and are based on province of residence, and so she lost the honor of being first. Karine Wilson, a noted Quebec philanthropist, was appointed in 1930. If you're a filmmaker listening to this podcast, Emily Murphy's story would make an excellent film. Sadly, we Canadians are not particularly good at telling our own story. I share all this to give an example of unfolding rights uh, for later in this episode, but also to draw us closer to middle axioms. But before I do that, I want to say more about another member of the Famous Five, perhaps the most famous of the Famous Five, uh, Nellie McClung. Uh, Ms. McClung was a teacher, a best-selling novelist, a social historian, a suffragette, uh, a member of the Legislative Assembly for Alberta, a member of the board of the CBC, and a delegate to the League of Nations. And woven through all of that was a person of faith, and the most famous woman, member, activist, in the Methodist Church, and later the United Church of Canada. She was a tireless advocate for women in the church, and led the fight to allow women to be ordained. But beyond this, she was a key lay leader in the courts of the church, meaning the governing bodies, and an international voice as well, representing Canada at the Methodist Ecumenical Conference in the mid-30s. For McClung and her co-religionists, there was no way to separate faith and activism. The command to love your neighbor meant seeking your neighbor's betterment in societal terms, economic security, health, education, personal fulfillment, and other markers of well-being. The technical term here is beneficence, loving your neighbor and helping them thrive. It is a primary obligation for Christians, and something we'll explore in greater depth in episode four. And this takes us, finally, to middle axioms. One author described them as concrete goals that represent the purpose of God in our time. Middle axioms elaborate on a general good and describe its implications in a specific context. If we begin with the good of beneficence, seek the well-being of others, and consider, for example, statistics regarding child poverty in Canada, a middle axiom would be setting a goal to eliminate child poverty. Put simply, agreement on goals and direction of change is what constitutes middle axioms. A simple flowchart, which you can't see because this is radio, uh, would look like this. You'd have obligation, little arrow, context, little arrow, middle axioms. 
Thinking back to the famous five, uh, the obligation was allowing all persons, women and men, to lead lives of meaning and consequence. The context was a too-clever-by-half technicality designed to thwart women. The middle axiom was challenging the status quo. So, a question. Should Christians be active in public life? What are the benefits? What are the dangers? Take a moment, if you wish. Continuing with our look at rights, we're going to look at human rights, and to do that, we're going to look at the last iteration of the Canadian $50 bill. The latest one has an icebreaker on it, a move that the last government made seemingly uncomfortable with glorifying pioneers in the area of human rights. So turn the bill over, and there's the famous five again, along with Therese Casgrain, first female leader of a political party in Canada. But then you'll need your glasses, because there's a teeny tiny bit of text with a quote from part of a text written by John Humphrey. It says, all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. I remember the first time I saw it, uh, ministers don't see a lot of 50s, uh, thinking, what is that quote? Who is this John Humphrey? I have a minor in Canadian history. Among my professors were Bill Kilborn and Jack Granitstein. My family fears me at Trivial Pursuit. It turns out John Humphrey wrote the first draft of the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Eleanor Roosevelt called the Declaration the International Magna Carta of Humanity. Humphrey is the only Canadian to win the UN Human Rights Prize, one of only 37 individuals to win it in the history of the prize. Other recipients include Nelson Mandela and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Most people have never heard of John Humphrey. Uh, Rewind the tape to hear my rant about Canadians' failure to tell or even know our story. The United Nations Declaration of Human Rights, now 75 years old, remains the best description of our highest aspirations as humans. And this may be a problem. Maybe our collective failure to live up to the Declaration, which has the force of international law, has led to our ignorance. Listen to Article 25. Everyone has the right to a standard of living adequate for the health and well-being of himself and his family, including food, clothing, housing, and medical care, and necessary social services, and the right to security in the event of unemployment, sickness, disability, widowhood, old age, or other lack of livelihood in circumstances beyond his control. Here, Humphrey is sounding like an Old Testament prophet describing our need to protect the widow, the orphan, and the alien, like some Latter-day Isaiah. The words have a unique ancient future quality to them, language that begins in a tradition and describes what is yet to be. So let's take a wider view for a moment and talk about rights. Here's Terry Anderson again. Rights are justified claims that individuals and groups can make upon others or upon society. 
They are characteristically claims of power, privilege, needed goods or services, those things deemed of basic importance to human life, also called human rights or earlier natural rights. They constitute moral claims that are deemed universal and applicable to all. They speak to our basic needs and what it means to be human. The late Max Stackhouse suggested the idea of human rights implies that there's a universal ethic, since it entails moral claims of the sort that everyone, everywhere, ought always to recognize. And so a question. Where does this idea of a universal ethic break down? Take a moment, if you wish. It was the Roman Catholic philosopher Jacques Maritain, writing in 1945, who said, We agree on these rights, providing we are not asked why. With the why, the dispute begins. In other words, whenever you cite Christian ethics as the source of this universal ethic, or point to the history of rights developed in the West— you immediately run the risk of imposing cultural assumptions on others. And while most of the world's nations signed the Universal Declaration, 75 years later, there's an ongoing debate about how other religions and other religions with a unique understanding of the law can live with the Declaration. So so let's hold that caution in our minds as we continue to explore the relationship between Christian ethics and rights. Beginning again with Max Stackhouse, he finds the root for this universal ethic in the obligations found in Scripture and the assumption that God has written these on every human heart. The great commandment leads to a need for justice, a standard that we extend to everyone. The complex aspect of rights is a shift in emphasis from what we are required to fulfill and what we may claim from others. When we establish a right, such as the right to be nourished, it's not clear who must meet this need. And when we feel compelled to honor a basic right, it doesn't automatically follow that others can demand the right from us. Again, these are complex issues and a source of considerable debate. Rights, then, are further broken down between civil-political rights, such as freedom of religion or speech, and socioeconomic rights, such as food, education, health care, etc. The roots of these are found in a desire to protect the vulnerable. In the civil realm, it meant protection from the tyranny of absolute power, from thinkers like John Locke, and in the economic realm, protection from the excesses of capitalism, thinkers such as Karl Marx. These rights are frequently in conflict, of course, and require a prioritizing of rights. The ethicist David Hollenbach suggests the following formulation. The needs of the poor take priority over the wants of the rich. The freedom of the dominated takes priority over the liberty of the powerful, and the participation of marginalized groups takes priority over the preservation of the order that excludes them. Now, these are big ideas, and some will find them challenging, but loving our neighbor is an open-ended 
command. It didn't come with stated limitations. The same Jesus who said, forgive seven times 70 and walk the extra mile and be perfect as your God in heaven is perfect, didn't seem to place limits on generosity, compassion, or moral attainment. We're going to end here. Uh, Next time, we're going to discuss moral character in some depth, including uh, what you should expect from your minister. I guess I'll be holding up a giant mirror. I can't wait. Thanks for joining me.